Welcome to the Not Old Better Show. I'm Paul Vogelsang. As part of our Smithsonian Associates Art of Living interview series, our guest today is Dr. Raphael Cormac. Dr. Raphael Cormac has written a new book, Midnight in Cairo, The Divas of Egypt's Roaring Twenties. And we'll be introducing and reading a section from his book, which is excellent. It's getting great reviews, and it is absolutely a winner. I loved this book. One of the world's greatest 20th century cosmopolitan cities, Cairo, was a magnet for the ambitious and talented. During the 1920s and 30s, a lively music, theater, film, and cabaret scene flourished, dominated by women as stars, but also as impresarios, entrepreneurs, owners, and promoters of the arts industry. Buffeted by crosswinds of colonialism and nationalism, conservatism and liberalism, religious and secular values, patriarchy and feminism, this new generation of celebrities offered a new vision for women in Egypt and throughout the Middle East. Raphael Cormac, an award-winning editor and translator, pulls back the curtain on these boundary-breaking women in entertainment. Dr. Cormac unveils the rich histories of independent enterprising figures like vaudeville star Rose Al-Yosef, who launched one of Cairo's most important literary newspapers. This is a passage that comes from a point early in Rosal Yusuf's career. Rosal Yusuf is one of the many women uh, featured in the book who started off as an actress and then made her name as a journalist. Uh, and this little incident comes from sort of when she's really just starting to take off. So the next few years saw Rose moving between various troops, picking up whatever jobs she could. One company she joined was led by the ambitious Okasha brothers, who were famous both for their flamboyance and their theatrical success, if not always for the quality of their acting. In her memoirs, Rose described the brothers' eccentricity, recalling that they did not believe in rehearsals, so the actors just learned their lines before the performance and hoped for the best. The company's star actress, Victoria Musa, had a problem with her throat that kept her from laughing with any volume. So, Rose claimed, Another actress would stand behind the curtain and make laughing noises in the appropriate places. While part of that theatre company, Rose faced another attack, not from the audience this time, but from the troupe's main source of funding. Again, the attack involved the clothes she wore, or didn't wear, and again, she emerged with her dignity intact. In her memoirs written in the 1950s, Rose looked back on the event triumphantly. One summer day, she remembered, they were in Alexandria doing a series of performances, and the troop members were all taking a break down by the sea. But when Rose got into her swimming costume and went down to where the Nile met the Mediterranean, she was in for a surprise. She did not know that the troop's main financier, the conservative nationalist politician and banker Talat Harb, was also there by the water. A prominent figure in early 20th century Egyptian politics and a supporter of the high arts, he is commemorated today with a statue that still stands at the centre of one of Cairo's uh, busiest roundabouts. A financial backer whom no theatrical company wanted to lose, Talat Harb was also a leading opponent of women's participation in the public sphere. So, when he saw a female member of his troupe exposing herself in a bathing suit in front of everyone, he demanded that she immediately cover up or be sacked and sent back to Cairo. A few of Rose's friends in the troupe tried to mediate, if she just apologised, they told her, they could smooth it over. But Rose, undaunted, said she would never apologise. 
she had already faced criticism for allegedly wearing revealing clothing on stage, and she was not going to back down now. She said that she would rather leave the troupe on the spot so that she could spend the whole day on the beach. And that is exactly what she did while the prudish banker looked on. In fact, after leaving the troupe, Rose stayed on a few extra days and sat on the beach in her swimming costume just to annoy him. That was Dr. Raphael Cormac reading from his new book, Midnight in Cairo, The Divas of Egypt's Roaring Twenties. Dr. Cormac will be presenting at Smithsonian Associates program entitled Midnight in Cairo, The Divas of Egypt's Roaring Twenties, May 20th, and we have him today. So please join me in welcoming Smithsonian Associate, Dr. Raphael Cormac. Raphael Cormac, welcome to the program. Thank you. Thanks a lot for having me. Well, thank you for joining us. I, I just think this is really a wonderful subject, really, to talk about your book, Midnight in Cairo, The Divas of Egypt's Roaring Twenties. Great title, getting great reviews. I enjoyed it. Thank you for sharing it with me. I want to start by asking you to share a little with us about your upcoming Smithsonian Associates presentation and maybe how you'll be using Zoom to engage our audience. We're all on Zoom these days, and uh, this book... Um, Again, the title of which I just can't recommend it highly enough, Raphael Cormac. The title is Midnight in Cairo, The Divas of Egypt's Roaring Twenties. The book has some great photos that we're going to talk about, so I imagine Zoom's going to lend itself nicely. But tell us a little bit about your upcoming presentation. Yeah, yeah, I'm really looking forward to the presentation, which is going to be I mean, almost midnight in Cairo. It will sort of take place. <laughs> right. It's sort of yeah, 6.30 U.S. time. Um it's been, yeah, it's been strange. I've been giving a lot of talks over Zoom uh, about this book now, and I've sort of settled into a bit of a rhythm. Uh, and I think I think it's more important when doing Zoom to try and have a little bit of fun with it, uh, especially with a book like this and, you know, giving a presentation like that. I think you need to, uh, yeah, really try and up the pizzazz. So as well as some great photos, I mean, there's going to be some uh, I'm excited to share photos, which I couldn't put in the book, uh, but there are many of which I have, you know, from my collections of research. And that's going to be fun. You know, some more photos of uh, of the women involved in the book uh, and also some of the uh, music and film clips, um, because uh, as I, you know, as I sort of talk about a lot, there's a. The soundtrack to this uh, era is one of the most important things. Uh, and, you know, even if you are going to a play, I mean, I think music was one of the most important parts of the entertainment business. Obviously, going to the cabaret music was important, but Egyptians in the 1920s and 30s wouldn't go to a, a film or to a play unless it had music in. So Zoom gives you a good, yeah, a sort of good opportunity to share extended little bits of the music, which uh, which I hope people will find fun, uh, as well as also I think we're going to be sharing a cocktail recipe uh, that comes from uh, 20th century Cairo. Um, it's called the um, the Suffering Bar Steward, or if you say it very quickly, uh, it sounds a bit ruder. <laughs> <laughs> I think I get that. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, invented at the Shepherd's Hotel in uh, in Cairo. Uh, by the by, the barman Joe Shalom, uh, and so yeah, we'll have music, we'll have some great pictures, and uh, if you want it, there'll be a cocktail recipe to drink. This just sounds like a wonderful presentation. Thank you for sharing that information with us too, because the the film footage, the music, 
these stories are all just so wonderful. Where did you gather the material? I can't imagine that, you know, given that this was the 20s that you were focused on, the Roaring 20s, what kind of archival material were you able to scour up and locate and find? That must have been an enormous part of your work was just the research into the material itself. Yeah, and also one of the one of the big fun bits as well. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, archivally speaking, uh, I, there are little bits that I've got to and, you know, found some, I found a great uh, description in the archive of, of the British teacher in, in 1910s of going to a play in the countryside at the end of the 1910s. And actually, he didn't know this, but he was seeing one of the biggest stars in uh, in Egypt at the time perform. And he leaves this long description, uh, which is, you know, unpublished. But, but broadly speaking, kind of nightlife in general and cabarets don't tend to make it into any archives, um, particularly uh, ones from the 1920s, uh, and in the Middle East, where it's quite hard often to get access to archives. So really, where the main sources came were in uh, the public, publicly available kinds of material from the time, you know, old n- newspapers, particularly old entertainment magazines. So in the 1920s, as uh, the entertainment scene kind of really takes off, uh, it also coincides with this huge boom of entertainment magazines. And, you know, everyone who has a little bit of ambition and a little bit of capital behind them decides to publish a magazine, many of which are entertainment magazines, filled with photos, gossipy stories, uh, kind of, yeah, song lyrics, all of this kind of stuff. So my approach in general in the book uh, has been to sort of accept that there's a big archival gap uh, when it comes to documenting a sort of a counterculture, which is which is what I see this kind of being. That doesn't get preserved in national archives often. You know, you can find little bits. But to accept that you're not going to find stuff in archives, but where you will find stuff is in old newspapers, which are you know, often overlooked, uh, but full of these amazing stories. Uh, and... Uh, uh, yeah, really sort of just waiting to be poured through. Well, good that you were able to find that because this is a story I think that is is so worth telling. It's a Middle East that I have to tell you, it was a real curveball for me. I I didn't necessarily think about the Middle East and the Roaring Twenties and divas kind of all in the same sentence. But of course, that's that's in the sentence, that's in the title of your book, Midnight in Cairo, which again is is excellent. What surprised you most as you were kind of you know doing all of this research? Yeah, I mean, I I agree with you that in our, I mean, particularly in uh, you know in Europe and America, we don't tend to associate this kind of uh, wild nightlife, uh, you know, Roaring Twenties with the Middle East. I mean, (laughs) uh, I'm sure as anyone who goes into a bookshop kind of knows when you go to the Middle East section, it's almost exclusively political. Um, But, you know, I think that uh, if for people who, who are from the Middle East and live there, this is a really kind of uh, important part of their cultural history. And and a lot of them, uh, you know, a lot of people are very invested in it. Uh, So I think it's important I think it's very important, actually, to show uh, that the Middle East isn't just this uh, sort of 
problem to solve you know on the political sphere but that it has a you know a long and vibrant history uh, of people who you know just having fun and uh, making great art uh, and making songs and plays and a history that is you know speaks more uh, to me certainly than any of the kind of political you know great man war histories however you you know want to put it uh and so i suppose i sort of knew a little bit about that when before reading this book i mean i i did a phd in uh in uh, arabic theater actually in adaptations of oedipus which was sort of very uh high-minded and uh and you know, scholarly uh, but i suppose the one thing that really surprised me was just how prominent the women of this uh, of this era were, and we're always we're, we're always told, I think, that when you're writing history before about the Second World War, uh, that women's stories are very hard to find. Uh, that uh, you know you really have to be creative and sort of, and because they're they're not preserved in ordinary places, you know, women often get the chance to uh, publish books. Uh, and, you know, weren't taken really seriously as as writers, say, or politicians or, or artists. And I think all of that is true. Uh, but as I was looking through these entertainment journals, uh, you couldn't move for seeing all these extremely prominent women on the covers. Uh, every article, you know, every seemed to be about one uh, female star or another. So I think that was, I mean... Yeah, I think I was surprised to see just how prominent uh, and how instrumental women were in this period. But, you know, not always, I think, uh, it didn't always do them favours to be uh, quite so uh, in the public eye and scrutinised. I mean, I think a a lot of the articles uh, about them were, as, uh, as we see in the entertainment press, you know, today, sort of picking apart what they looked like or going over there, the minutiae of their love affairs, which may or may not have happened, uh, and all this kind of stuff. So, I mean, I don't think it's um, perfect for them uh, that they're all over these newspapers, but from a historian's perspective, it's amazing. Well, in fact, and the book points this out, too, that there's this almost glitzy facade and that that some of the women's lives were not always that glamorous, that they they did face some some challenges. Yeah, I mean, it's certainly true. And and the women really who we know the most about are the ones who managed to make it to the top, be successful and sort of not fall by the wayside. They, you know, the women who left behind memoirs, which are another big, a big source of, uh, of the information that I use in the book. Uh, so there are, I mean, there are countless stories of women who come uh, and are sort of lost to history, forgotten about, but must have had an extremely uh, tough time of it uh, as both, you know, kind of targets, sexual targets for men uh, and, you know, working extremely hard and often subject to to violence. So, I mean, one of the stories that I tell in the book, uh, the most kind of uh, uh, striking example of this is the case of a, a dancer called Imtisel Fauzi, who in the mid-1930s is kind of, is up and coming. She goes through a lot of different cabarets and and, uh, 
theatres as a, as a dancer, has a small part in a film. And in 1936, decides to try and start her own cabaret in, in partnership with another woman, uh, but discovers that there is a sort of local gang that, that all these areas are controlled by a kind of mafia-like gang who ask her for protection money, which she either can't or won't pay. And eventually um, they threaten her. She goes to the police who who just don't help her out and they kill her in her nightclub, you know, as she's just about to perform. Uh, that is, you know, one of the uh, more famous examples, you know, because it ended quite so tragically and turned into a, a huge law case. But there must have been, you know, countless sort of lower level uh, uh, examples of, of very similar things going on to women on the on the edges of this uh, nightlife scene that we just don't hear about. We are with Raphael Cormac. Raphael Cormac is the author of the new book, Midnight in Cairo, The Divas of Egypt's Roaring Twenties. Raphael Cormac will be at the Smithsonian Associates presentation Thursday, May 20th. We're going to put links up to where you can find out more information about that presentation, about Raphael Cormac, and about his wonderful new book, Midnight in Cairo. Again, Raphael Cormac, the book is fantastic. I think one of the stories that just jumped out at me, and you, you've read a little bit for us uh, today about about Rose uh, Yosef, and uh, she's just this fascinating, talented person, just a singer. You talked a little bit about her costumes. She was, I think, an, an activist, I, I would say that. And um, maybe tell us a little bit about her literary success, because that is really just a phenomenal element to this story too. It's, you know, kind of the gossipy entertainment, almost the People magazine, I thought at the time as I was reading through this. But really a great story about Rose Al-Yusuf, the entrepreneur and her literary success. Uh, yeah, yeah. She's a, a fascinating woman and a uh, kind of the flip side of, of what we were just talking about, which was, mm-hmm. uh, you know, if the entertainment business really chewed some people out and, and, and spat them out, it was also gave women who would otherwise have had no opportunities, incredible opportunities. And, and Rosal Youssef is kind of the most obvious example of this. So she, her early life is very, is sort of very fuzzy. She was, she was actually from uh, greater Syria. So it was then called at the time sort of the, uh, I think, uh, what is she was from what is now Lebanon uh, but she came to Cairo when she was about 10 years old in very mysterious circumstances she'd sort of been abandoned by her adoptive family left as a small girl with nothing in Alexandria found her way to Cairo alone got into a theatre company worked her way up through sort of these new vaudeville plays that were going on uh and as we as we saw through through that troupe, the Okasha troupe, and by the early 1920s, when you know she's in her 20s, she is the biggest star in Cairo's biggest theatrical uh, company. Uh, so she's gone from you know no formal education, basically utter poverty, without a family to help her, to sort of this extremely high level on uh, on Cairo's uh, nightlife scene. But then what she does is she takes that fame uh, and in the mid-1920s, she moves a step even further and she, she creates her own 
entertainment magazine and and she tells in, in quite a lot of detail how you know the idea specifically occurred to her but you know, she's in a cafe she's reading some of these other entertainment magazines and they're sort of full of gossip uh what she doesn't say is a few of them are also full of attacks on her um and she decides that she can she can do better she she gets a group of people together uh she thinks she's gonna she's gonna make a magazine that yeah that features theater that features literature poetry uh you know treats the nightlife scene as uh, you know something worthy of uh, consideration by a literary magazine uh and she gives the magazine her own name Rosal Youssef and then it's again it's a huge success um and throughout the 20s and 30s and and 40s she's uh she's in charge of it uh, it becomes increasingly political in in the 1930s uh so i mean she's an activist um in terms of you know just the specifics of being a woman in the 1920s starting your own theater magazine is a impressive thing to do uh she includes a lot in the early issues a lot of like quite quite feminist articles that she herself has written and then in the 1930s she gets quite heavily involved in parliamentary politics and the magazine is is banned a few times uh and then by the time she uh you know by the late 1940s uh she sort of had her run with it hands it over to her son uh goes into retirement dies uh, dies of not not so long after that in the 50s she writes her memoirs but the magazine itself is still going today under the name Rosal Yusuf um so it's it's this real testament to what opportunities were becoming available in the 1920s for a woman with i mean a lot of skill and ambition but nonetheless you know opportunities that had not really been available for someone like her before then well i love the pictures in the book and um they're they're just remarkable these just stunning black and white photos the one that i, I suppose probably my favorite is of tahia uh, Carioca, and I might not be pronouncing that correctly, but but you'll you'll correct me. But she's just she's a very happy looking uh, woman, very happy looking person. She's bearing her midriff, and I thought that was kind of an unusual photo, just in and of itself. And um, I wonder what's your favorite photo in the book, and maybe tell us a little bit about what you learned about you know Tahia, because that that's a really remarkable story in the book too. Yeah, actually, I mean that's a that's a really great photo, also on the cover there, and I mean and Mm -hmm. called karaoke, of course, after the dance, the karaoke she she was Mm -hmm. famous for doing in her early career, and she's kind of she belongs to a slightly later generation than than all the rest of the uh, stars, and so so she kind of caps the book off and you know i sort of frame the book at, at the beginning with uh, this woman called shafia al-kitia who's sort of a big star in the 1890s a sort of precursor to all of these stars from the 20s and 30s and then end with tahir karaoke who's who whose career actually keeps going through the 50s and 60s uh, and actually who who meets edward saeed and edward saeed writes an interesting article about meeting her uh, but she, yeah, she represents a sort of new generation, much more actually actively politically involved than any of the previous generation, uh, much more into film and dancing. She, she spent, I mean, her life is kind of this crazy uh, 
mishmash of different things. Again, like like most of the women featured, she had an extremely tough childhood, uh, but then you know comes of age in Cairo during the Second World War. Actually, ends up marrying an American GI, going back to America for a little while, trying to make it in Hollywood, but failing, and then sort of coming back to Egypt, starring in more uh, starring in more films. I can't even <laughs> I can't even remember where I'm going with this. I'm just so uh, yeah. Uh, it's just a great, great was, photo. Was, and, and oh yeah, and, what, and the other photo. Yeah. Well, yeah. Did you have a favorite? Mm, I, I mean, I really like the photo of of Rosa Youssef sitting on the uh, chaise long mm. with her high heels <laughs> kicked up. Uh, there's some. There's also there were some really great photos which I will show uh, a few of them in the mm-hmm. presentation, which uh, we just couldn't use either because they come from these theatrical magazines and therefore the quality is not quite good enough to reproduce uh mm. or or because i you know i'm not entirely sure about the copyright of them i mean mm-hmm. I risk it mm-hmm. but one type of photo of which there is one i think briefly featured in the book that always struck strikes me about this period uh is the sort of trope of actresses dressing up as men and sending their photos into the newspapers, which I will show a few of them in the uh, over the course of the talk. But it was a big craze in the in the twenties and thirties. Uh, one of the most prominent women who did it was Munira Mahdea, whose whose story is featured quite heavily in the book. But they were all doing it. Sort of, it became a thing to do where you'd dress up in men's clothes and, and send it into the newspapers. And I I like this idea that they're being that the actresses and at the time are being very playful with ideas of gender uh because you know in this period uh gender roles and uh kind of gender norms are really being questioned partly by by the fact that women are are really thrusting themselves into the public sphere into, into places where previously you know they weren't supposed to be but now they were sort of making themselves known about it you know they were putting themselves out there and a lot of the sort of more conservative uh members of the press and and uh society in general were very worried that you know women were trying to take the place of men uh that uh yeah the family life was you know all the kind of things that you would expect to see uh when uh women you know really become throw themselves into the public sphere for the first time, but people were worried about it. And I like to think it in a way, these actresses dressing up as men and sending in their photos to the newspapers is a kind of way of uh, mm-hmm. teasing them. A mm-hmm. bit. Final question for you, Raphael Cormac, you know, granted the title of the book midnight in Cairo, um, set in, in Egypt, Egypt in the Middle East probably isn't Saudi Arabia or isn't Jordan with respect to repression of, of journalists. And we all know about uh, Jamal Khashoggi, the journalist and the Saudi dissident who was who was murdered. Did you ever did you ever face any pushback in telling this story? Um, I mean, so far, I've uh, it's it's only just coming out in Egypt uh, next month. Uh, mm-hmm. And we're trying to work mm-hmm. on an Arabic translation. I mean, so far. Everyone's been very, uh, very happy about it. <laughs> I'm, others may okay. not be. I mean, we we wait to see. I think. I mean, mm. in Egypt, there's a there's a real nostalgia about this period uh, amongst uh, a lot of Egyptians. You know, this sort of 
more open cosmopolitan time. I mean, we can ask ourselves, you know, how much, like any nostalgia, how much of any of that is exactly true. But people are very interested in the period. Uh, And Mm. I mean, I think perhaps because, uh, you know, in my view, uh, because it has this kind of possibility and this sense that things are moving forward and that change is possible and all of this stuff, which, Mm. which a lot of people feel is, is missing at the moment in, in much of the Middle East and, you know, feels like no one can really move forward with anything at the moment. Um, so in some ways, uh, um, I think people are interested in that period for those reasons and, and therefore may be quite interested in the book, whether or not they exactly like my take on it remains to be seen. Uh, but so far people have been, have been very keen on it. That's good. That's good. Well, it, certainly I'm keen on it. The book The book is wonderful. Again, the title of the book is Midnight in Cairo, The Divas of Egypt's Roaring Twenties. The author, Raphael Cormac, has been our guest today. We're going to put links up to where our audience can find out more information. This wonderful book about Cairo and its heyday, the nightlife of Cairo. Really, this uh, this whole period could, could rival London, Paris, Berlin, any of these locations. And so I just encourage our audience to check out the Smithsonian Associates presentation coming up with Raphael Cormac and check out the book, definitely. Raphael Cormac, thanks for your time. I know we're talking to you overseas and uh, my best to you and your family. I hope everybody's safe with uh, the, uh, uh, the the COVID issues, but uh, my best to you. Yeah, we're making Thank you very much, Yana. Thanks very much for having me on. It's great to talk about the book. My thanks to Dr. Raphael Cormack for joining us today. You'll find links to Dr. Raphael Cormack's Smithsonian Associates presentation and his work on our website, along with many more details. My thanks to the Smithsonian Associates team for all they do to support the show. And my special thanks to you, my wonderful Not Old Better Show audience. Please be safe, practice smart social distancing, get the vaccine, and talk about better. The Not Old Better Show. Thanks, everybody. Thanks, everybody.